This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. With thanks to Monique Sebaya for the last three hours of Out on the Patio and uh, that awesome Mead Ison live to air in the Triple R performance space. We welcome you to Bite Into It on Triple R on a Wednesday evening. Uh, in the studio tonight, we do have um, a double team of Dan's. Uh, we have both <laughs> Dan Morganti and Dan Salmon. How are you both? Not bad. Very well. I'm, I'm happy with Morganti if you just want to keep, keep on that uh, I, that tangent. I can be Salmon for the evening. <laughs> I've been <laughs> Salmon most of my life. It's it's fine. Sounds amazing. <laughs> um, Vanessa did actually refer to you as um, Salmon the other way. And I was I pictured this kind of young press gang kind of uh, um, junior sort of coming in. I was like, who is this fresh face Salmon talent? <laughs> It's <laughs> like, damn. He's, he's been here a long time, man. <laughs> been here a while. Um, I'll be with you also. Uh, my name's Warren. Um, if you've ever fallen in love with a robot, uh, like in Phoenix style, or, or a robot has taken your job, um, you will have plenty to relate to with our first guest tonight. Uh, Teaching a Robot to Love is the Melbourne International Comedy Festival show of tech worker turned comic Yanni Agaslau, who joins us on the show shortly. He is drifting down St George's Road um, in a Sydney start, Sydney cider style, um, but he will make it here um, a little bit later on, I assure you. Um, if you love local games and, and are always looking for something a little bit different, um, Surprise Attack is a Melbourne game studio who um, tinkers in that space. Um, you described it as they've kind of got a central mechanic, Morganti, um, that's kind of always a little bit different. How, how did you explain it? Um, yeah, they, they focus on games that uh, are unique or have a, a, a style that isn't really seen in mainstream games or AAA games. So mm. um, they focus on games like uh, they have Orwell, um, which is a game about uh, like looking at social media and profiling people and um, basically a, a gamifying, taking information from like you're a spy or a um, government agent or you're just like um, looking up on people and to games like Hack- Hacknet, which uses actual uh, coding languages in the game to um, as part of the game command prompts and stuff like that, which is oh, pretty cool. interesting. So just uh, kind of off-kilter, um, left-to-center mechanics that they... Uh, like to help produce. Nice. Um, one of their teams, Stephen Heller, will be having a chat with us about that and also taking games across the country to some uh, far-flung places, uh, which should be good too. But before we do get there, there is a bit of news um, uh, around the place. Um, Dan, uh, Salmon, one of the uh, interesting things that's going on is happening down at Palm Springs. Um, Absolutely. So uh, Palm Springs uh, for... It's a, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a shadowy kind of uh, you shouldn't know about it but everyone knows about it uh, conference around uh, robots. So Palm Springs is um, Amazon is hosting their semi-secret Mars conference down there, um, which is essentially a a way for uh, Jeff Bezos, who's the founder head of Amazon, to indulge his love of all things robots. Um, <laughs> He uh, recently had a photo taken inside a 1.5-ton giant mech suit, which is... Uh, and he was comparing himself to... I don't know whether he did this verbally, but a lot of people were actually saying it was a bit like uh, Ripley from uh, Alien Aliens. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I wasn't particularly enamoured with that uh, with that comparison. But, re- I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. Um, it's around, obviously... Well, not obviously. Uh, Amazon Robotics is, mm. is becoming a thing. With they're, mm-hmm. they're moving into that space. And uh, we're we're seeing uh, a, lo- a lot of uh, cool stuff come out, but not a, not a whole lot just yet because, of course, we don't actually know about it. Uh, 
or at least they don't want us to know about it. They did have some stuff from, um, they've got the uh, quad from um, Boston um, Dynamics, um, their electric quadruped um, spot mini, which was hanging around. Um, I think they've they've kind of traditionally been a little bit further behind. I think the drone delivery service is probably something that they're, they're very strong at. But um, yeah, uh, uh, Alphabet actually offloaded Boston Dynamics to um, SoftBank uh, early last year, but um, a big fan of what those guys do. But it is it is super creepy and, and super weird at the same time. But yeah, I think it's. I've only just noticed it, but I, I reckon Bezos looks like uh, a fly fisherman from the Terminator franchise. He's kind of got that <laughs> Teflon coated uh, fly fishing vest. Um, like, wait, I'll, I'll get that metallic trout. <laughs> he he's just gotten <laughs> buff. Like, he, he have you ever seen pictures of him? Like when he first started Amazon, to what he looks like now, he is. He's, he's a weapon now. He's got a lot more time on his hands. Yeah. He has to do the actual work for him. He's just walking around with his billions pumping himself full it's of like, steroids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, one of the other things that um, has blown up uh, is um, Cambridge Analytica. Uh, if you do have internet, you might know a little bit about this story um, that's been unfolding over the past few days. Uh, Cambridge Analytica are, uh, I guess, some um, data specialists who've been involved with the American um, uh, political campaigns of um, uh, a few big players in recent years. Um, stories are unfolding that uh, Cambridge Analytica may have actually released um, the Facebook data uh, of up to 50 million users um, as part of the Trump election campaign. Um, it's interesting. Um, Cade, uh, who listeners of the show will be familiar with, has written a, a pretty good description of um, what he's calling weaponized design. Um, and we'll maybe tweet that out um, or put it up on our, our Facebook page as well, ironically, um, about what's going on there. It's an interesting thought. Um, the, the idea of... I, I did kind of scoff a little bit um, when, when you read things like weaponized design, but effectively what, it's, what it means is making user trade-offs where the ideal user um, is um, given precedence over a variety of trade-offs that people do need to make um, when they sign up to services. So uh, when you sign up, you might, in theory, um, opt into a, a variety of things, but one of those is, is definitely not... The seemingly innocuous thing where you say, yes, I'm happy to do that and yes, I'm happy to, I don't know, pass on a, um, um, the Facebook um, name of my friends, but you don't also um, um, believe that you're also going to be passing on their email address, their phone number, um, permissions to a range of other things. So it's kind of, um, I guess, weaponizing design is focusing um, the exploitation of users um, beyond the kind of things that they would reasonably expect to opt into. It just cements that adage for me that if uh, you're not paying for the product, you are the product. That's kind of what uh, mm. I get from that. Absolutely. Mm. And and it is something we've, we've always got in the back of our minds when we're signing up to uh, these services because I mean, I, it would be silly of you to think that Facebook aren't using your data in some way, but you always have a hope that it's not going to be used in, in the ways that we're seeing now with uh, the Cambridge Analytica. And I mean, Cambridge Analytica are, are a bit of a shadowy organisation as it is. So... It's it's hardly surprising that we're seeing this information coming out there, but at the same time, the the cat's well and truly bolted. I don't Absolutely. think there's any way that we can be able to get that back in the box. So yeah. the way the way it actually worked was um, uh, prior to the 2016 election, they were a sort of a fairly small consulting company um, funded by the family of a conservative uh, hedge fund uh, mogul, um, Robert Mercer, who's connected to the the Republicans. Um, after the election, rumours began to circulate that they had played a role in Trump's victory, um, which, you know, I mean, rumours like that will always will always fly around. The way it actually worked was typically with um, political advertising, they use fairly crude 
um, tools like demographics and zip codes and stuff like that. Cambridge had actually been working on a personality um, app um, based on sort of like the five personality traits or sort of five five um, sort of sliding scales that you can place yourself on. Um, and they'd actually put that out there. Um, one of the people at Cambridge had been given um, a fair bit of money to um, develop this. Um, and then they, once they'd actually been elected to work on the Ted Cruz campaign, I think um, uh, just before that, um, they actually put that to use and then they became involved in the in the Trump campaign. Um, there's a lot of people suggesting that they didn't actually have a significant uh, impact on the results. Um, uh, so even though they were doing that, um, knowing this targeting is not necessarily... It's not necessarily um, a conspicuous advantage. Um, anyone can, you know, jump into Facebook and target people fairly well. Yeah, well, that's um, what Facebook marketing is. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So, um, uh, but I think obviously the the large breach here and the thing that's kind of um, driving the delete. Um, Facebook um, movement is the um, is the privacy um, kind of loopholes that allowed fifty million sort of sets of user data to be exploited in such a way. And the the amount of people that were compromised, and also the amount of people that use Facebook, I like what's happened uh, in the past recently. Mm. I could only see with this being a matter of time before it happened to mm. uh, Facebook as well, where others, where people's data would uh, be breached and uh, handed off to people they weren't intending for it to be in the hands of. Yeah. I did see a good tweet from uh, one of our regular guests, uh, Vanessa Page, who did say, who did, who has been off it for a little while, who said, um, it's time we actually just um, set this up as a public service utility and sort of take it out of private hands. It's kind of reached the level of a phone service or, yeah. um, mm. or, or another utility. Um, there was some interesting share activity as well, uh, Mr. Morganti. Yeah, so uh, Zuckerberg has been selling his shares. Um, he's made, I think, $70 million uh, from the fact that he sold shares before he lost money. Uh, from he lost the, about $3 billion. Yeah, though, he did lose <laughs> drop in the ocean, but still it seems like a consolidation of uh, his assets. Uh I think it's more just a coincidence, though, because he's filed with the SEC uh, in September, saying that it's for a um, uh, it's for an investment, philanthropic investment with his wife um, that they set up in 2015. So mm. I think he's kind of covered there. It just looks a little okay. bit suspicious, and um, just the timing there. Yeah, mm. and and in the past that um, not necessarily um, with tech, but other people have been known to set up. Uh, investments, uh, philanthropic investments to hide tax and things like that. So, yeah. you know, there's, it's just... Uh, Trump Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> um, we might move on there. Uh, Simon, I understand something funny has been going on with uh, self-driving cars. Not funny. Mm. Well, funny in the non-ha-ha sense, yep. I think, um, is probably the best way of putting it. Yep. Uh, over the weekend, uh, Uber, who have been trialling self-driving cars now for a year, maybe 18 months, mm-hmm. um, have confirmed that one of their self-driving cars did uh, strike a pedestrian in the US and uh, unfortunately the pedestrian did uh, pass away. So um, this she was walking across the road outside of an official footpath. So um, obviously this is not trying to shift blame or anything like that. Mm. It was absolutely, I think, we uh, need to put all the cards on the table, but it is definitely yeah. an issue around the autonomy of uh, dri- self-driving cars because if it was a person driving that car, they would have seen this woman sure. crossing the road outside of that. But it, it does, um, you know, bring into, I suppose, sharp relief all of the apprehension that a lot of people have around self-driving cars as the technology becomes a little bit more ubiquitous. And especially seeing as um, if, the, if Uber is looking at rolling out the uh, idea, the their own autonomous vehicles 
en masse, uh, there are still some uh, things to be ironed out, I think, before we before we can uh, really be comfortable with it on the road. But that's my personal opinion. I don't know mm. how you guys are feeling about the, uh, the, the march towards self-driving and autonomous automobiles. I know last week we, were, um, we touched on some self-driving or self-flying planes that were being uh, touted in, the, in New Zealand and uh, they were where we kind of came to the conclusion that it was probably going to be easier to have a self-flying plane uh, not kill someone than a self-driving car not kill someone. But yeah. I'd be interested in get your. I would your like some opinion. self-recycling PET bottles. That, yeah. That would be oh, really imagine. Good. That. Yeah, it's called re- it's called refilling your bottle. Laura. <laughs> <laughs> um, in technology, we were also heading um, uh, space. Uh, Morganti, what's what's going on in space? Um, so basically, we've gotten to a point where space travel has become so um, in, enticing to a lot of private companies that the red tape hasn't caught up yet. There's uh, needs to be government intervention, uh, or doesn't need to be, but the government needs to. Catch up. Yeah, catch up basically is what um, what the problem is. Um, so all these, like Elon Musk being one of them, uh, Lockheed and Martin uh, have a joint space venture with Boeing uh, called United Launch Alliance. Of course, they also have military contracts. Um, and there's also the possibility of weaponizing space. So that mm. they're saying that not yet, but it's possible in 10 years' time that countries could um, place... Uh, orbital rockets in space or something which it sounds pretty um, sounds pretty far in the future like it's we're living in we're living in the future mm. but mm-hmm. it's still a, a threat that they that they need to take into account um, and you know patrol and police basically is the suggestion of the piece that we're looking at that um, we've gone too far in sort of commercializing that, well, that part of our well they're suggesting that um, the, the commercial problems, you know, commercial solutions, which is yep. a very American uh, capitalism, capitalist way to think, is that mm-hmm. the market will uh, fix everything if mm-hmm. you allow it. But uh, I think space is uh, too uh, too grand and too dangerous to just mm-hmm. allow the market to take take its uh, take its own sweet time with developing all these policies and procedures. There was, a, I guess, a fairly um, uh, familiar US response to the reason we've not weaponized space in the past is because it's been too expensive. Yeah, and now the price is dropping. The guy's kind of smiling at it going, finally, it makes sense to um, stick some big guns up there. Which yes. Is, which is stupid. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is not too far away. Um, it kind of feels like Melbourne when we've got that back on and the footy's back. It's uh, I've got a big smile on my face usually. Um, one of the people who will be presenting a show uh, this year is Yanni Agaslau, who is in the studio with us now. He is doing a show called Teaching a Robot to Love. Um, Yanni, thanks for coming in. No, no worries, Warren. No worries, Dan and Dan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you taught a robot to love before or is this something you're exploring yourself for the first time? Well, I think I'm going to have to change the name, to be honest. I'm going to do it at the Edinburgh Fringe. So I've, I, I, I think I'm going to change the name just because there's so much confusion over the title because it's called Teaching a Robot to Love, right? I thought that is sort of like just with the whole thing we're developing robots, trying to sort of make artificial intelligences eventually that'll be at a human level. But all anyone ever goes is, oh, you're doing that show about making love to a robot, aren't you? <laughs> That's my dad's like, oh, yeah. You, you sh-. So is it is it how to make love to a robot? I'm like, That's not the name, Dad. That's just my Saturday. Night. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do have a section in it about sex robots because that's a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I just, uh, I thought the title was pretty clever, but it turns out maybe it's just a bit too close to a million other things. <laughs> uh, or maybe it's too clever. Maybe you were ahead of the game. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> let's say that. Yeah, let's let's go with that. Yeah.
Um, so this is something you've sort of recently become interested in. You, you're, you've been a sort of lawyer in the past and you just thought this is really important at the moment. I need to well, I mean, like, I, I mean, if you ask anyone five years ago whether they're into AI, everyone would have said no because mm. it's just really sort of exploded over the last few years because of a lot of developments. And I watched that um, AlphaGo documentary. Have you guys seen that? No, it's no. Uh, this thing on Netflix and it's basically Google DeepMind, which is a subsidiary of Google, but it was originally its own company. They built an AI which uh, was uh, built to play the game of Go, right, which is mm. like a sort of ancient Chinese game and it's always been like the holy grail of AI to solve because, you know, mm. uh, Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue in like 1997, but like this game is much more complex than chess because the board's like 17 by 17 and they say something like the amount of possible moves in a game of Go is more than the number of uh, atoms in the universe, right? So, Whoa, yeah. okay. And they always say, and apparently Go is much more of a sort of uh, intuitive game. Like chess is very a thinky game, you know, apparently mm. like if you ask a chess master, why'd you make that move? They're like, well, you always make that move because this, this, and this, and it's all very logical. But apparently if you ask a Go Grandmaster, why'd you play that move? Sometimes they'll be all like like hippies. They'll be like, it just felt like the right move, right? And mm. so the idea of building a, a system that kind of had this intuition like a human mm. has been the holy grail. And, and they built the system and it beat the world champion of Go about two years ago. And like it's this documentary is amazing because you watch the guy come in and he never expects to lose, right? He's like, oh, mm. you know, I think I'll win this like 4-1, maybe 5-0. And he lost 4-1. And you can see him like after the games, he's Korean and you see him and he's saying things like, I just, yeah, I didn't really expect it. And then, then, then some of the moves that the computer came up with, like they're now moves that humans play, you know, mm. things like that where humans now go, oh God, we saw it. The computer did that first. And now we looked at it and we're like, that didn't make sense to us when we saw it. But now we're kind of like, whoa, that's really good. And so you, you see like this computer intelligence sort of like lifting human intelligence up with it, which I think is a super amazing thing that, you know, that, that AI could possibly do for a lot of areas. What's this documentary called? I'm going to have to watch it's it. It's called AlphaGo. AlphaGo, yeah. yeah. I'm going to get onto that. Yeah. Do you have any things in your life that you can't wait to be automated and you wish other intelligence was thinking about? Hells yes. Mm. I mean, there's a million things like... Um, uh, I was reading a thing about, you know, Elon Musk, you know, everyone knows him for SpaceX and they know him for Tesla. But there's also a thing called Neuralink, which is um, building, which is a thing, it's like a brain interface. So you can sort of like think think things and it'll go into a computer, right? And so there's mm. a couple of things for that. Like one, if they, and this is like years off into the future, obviously, but like you could like think conversations. Like, you know how mm. now when you like, I have to articulate my thoughts, right? So that mm. you know exactly what it is that I'm thinking. And sometimes we don't quite have the words for it. You're like, oh, how do I articulate this feeling that I've got? But if you could just think things to each other, like that's one aspect of it. But the thing that I read when I was like that, I want that is like, they, they said like, say you were like, writing some music, you know, and you kind of have that thought of like, oh, I need this to be just a bit faster. You could just think faster and the computer would know, oh, I just speed that mm. up, right? And it would just change in real time, like according to your thoughts, like things like that mm. are super amazing when you think about them. And, um, but those are all off way in the future. Right for now, I just basically need Google Maps to get me from A to B. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and not guess where you're trying to go. <laughs> yeah, but it's a funny thing that because that is an interesting thing with, with Siri and Google Maps. Like I, I never use Siri because it's a bit clunky. But Google Maps, sometimes, like when I'm driving, I'll use Siri just because I don't want to use my hands. Mm. And the way we interact with things, I think, changes depending on, like, you know, if you're typing something in your computer, you don't think of it like a person. But there was one time I was trying to nav somewhere and I, I said, I said, hey, hey, Siri, navigate me to a petrol station. And then for whatever reason, I missed the petrol station. And then I was like, oh, I've missed the petrol station. Hey, Siri, navigate me to a petrol station again. And then there was traffic I couldn't get to the turn off and I missed that one too. And I remember before the third time I asked Siri, 
I felt this sense of shame. You know, like I didn't want to ask, like I'd failed or something. So like, Sorry to bother you again. Yeah, yeah. Like, like she had something better to do. Like, and then I was thinking, it's just your phone, Yanni. I mean, come on. What was but, her reply? What is it this time? <laughs> yeah, she was busy telling the other series, this guy, man. I tell you what. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting the sort of way that we sort of, you know, we eventually, if, if the way you interact with something is very human, you know, um, then you almost start treating it like a human. And this is one of these things with these discussions about ethics, you know, like, because, you know, people say we need to teach AIs ethics. And I'm like, well, maybe we need ethics dealing with our AIs, you know, because mm-hmm. I read this thing about the internet of things, you know, you've heard the myth about yeah. the Yeah, mm-hmm. so everything in your home is going to be hooked up to the internet. And, you know, that's cool when you go, oh, I want to turn the air conditioning on so that when I'm mm-hmm. home, though, the house is cool. But then I read another article that was like, oh, in years to come, all of your appliances will have personalities. <laughs> and I thought, oh, great, right? Now, you know, now people with no social skills will be able to get their whole house offside. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> you have people knocking on friends' doors and going, oh, can you cook me some food? And they'll be like, well, you got food at your place. I'll be like, yeah, but I pissed the fridge off and now it's not talking to me. <laughs> what yeah. personality is your toilet going to have? Well, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> what did you eat? <laughs> <laughs> it depends if it's one of those Japanese ones. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, do you, back to the, the ethics piece as well. Yeah. Do, do you think, um, are, are you concerned that things are just moving that little bit quicker than we can kind of get our heads around? I like, think that's that's generally the case. Like, you mm. know, if, if it, I mean, like, like you were saying with, um, you were talking about before, that the law always lags behind a lot of these things, you know, like, mm. you know, like people getting trolled and doxxed and stuff on Twitter and things like that. And like the law kind of has these existing laws that don't quite know how to deal with it. Because at the moment, technology is really at the behest of people, right? Mm. So, you know, I talk about this in my show about, you know, really at the moment because we're top of the tree, you know. uh, So, like, you know, Microsoft had that uh, chatbot Tay. Do you Mm. remember this? It was like a 13-year-old girl or something. Is that the one? No, it was like, um, it was just a chatbot that they Mm. built, but it was an AI chatbot and it was meant to learn from the humans that talk to it, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously people worked out that they could make Tay say things by telling things to Tay. Mm. And within a day they had to pull it offline because it was this racist, genocide advocating, Holocaust denying abomination, Mm. right? Mm. And it really, (laughs) like at some point got into the whole Gamergate thing and slagged that woman off and Mm. she was like, you know, this is what happens when you have content neutral algorithms rhythms on, on, online and mm. you know these things like you know how do you police these things I mean because it, it's they're all subject to our all of our human weaknesses in a lot of ways so those are conversations that we definitely need to have and that's kind of something that I touch on in the show as mm. well do you have uh, people coming up to you after the show sort of going, these are the things that I'm kind of concerned about? Do you become like a, a help desk um, sort of Well, it's a funny phone? thing because I'm not professional. It's like more of, a, more of a lay interest. People just kind of give me the, the quick rundown. Generally, the thing I always get is that was so fascinating but super scary. Mm. That's yeah. generally what people say, which I think is, mm. is not an uncommon feeling with technology nowadays because it it is moving faster and faster, you know, and then... Um, you know, and, and this is where, you know, I touch on the show as well, the whole thing about, you know, the singularity, you know, about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea that, you know, technology will develop faster and faster and eventually it's going to be infinite. And mm. and then there's that whole idea about if there's an AI that's much more powerful than us so we need to worry about how it's going to treat us, like a parent who's raised a kid that's like, you know, eventually going to be like the one going to put you in a, yeah. on an old in folks' home. home or something yeah. like that. 
But um, it's always funny that because I've got a, I've got a cover of Time magazine that I have in the show, and it's got, it's about the singularity, and it's just got this picture of this robot, and the um the headline that Time went with was like 2045, the year that man becomes immortal, and you always show it to people, and young people are like sweet, and old people just do maths in their head. <laughs> Am <laughs> I going to be out? Or yeah, they're like oh, 2045 minus 19. Oh, I'm going to stop smoking. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, do I really want to be immortal when I feel like shit? Yeah. The, the guy behind that idea of the singularity actually ended up working at Google a few years ago. Ray which is Kurzweil. Like, which is a little bit scary. Did he really? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, that, guy, that guy's... Um, They're going to know what you on. think before you type it into their little search bar. Well, that, you know, that's, much that's, that's the thing with... Uh, that's an AI thing, you know, the one where you type in Google what you want to search for mm. and um, and they've had to go in and manually change it because some mm. of the things like... Um, there was a point where if you typed our Jews into the search bar, it would come yeah. up with just evil, yeah. right? And then they had to go change that. Mm. And if you typed in our black people, it would say more like to commit crimes and you'd be like oh no I was going to write disproportionately dominant at the 100 metre sprint but, <laughs> and then they have to go in and literally change these things so that it mm. doesn't pop up and now if you type in our black people it says more likely to be lactose intolerant so still about intolerance but it's lactose now <laughs> interesting um, have you learnt stuff doing your show like is it just a great opportunity to kind of like fill your brain with kind of sweet facts yeah or? it's one of those things that I mean I, I like writing shows about different things and you know I generally pick things that I'm super interested in mm. and it's great it just gives me an opportunity to really just dive into whatever it is that I'm, I'm I'm writing the show about every year you know so you know if I if I want to pay for something I can tax deduct it as well that's always a nice benefit as well <laughs> <laughs> what kind of tech you picked up this year then I, I haven't done much I mean you know the thing is like most of the stuff operate most of the stuff operates on your computer or on your smartphone or something like that um, like the only real sort of external thing I could buy is like like a, like a smart speaker or something but I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of those right about now I mean the, I, I did read a thing which was um, you know like when you use Siri or Alexa or whatever like the reason I don't use it is because half the time it, it mistranslates what I'm trying to say to it right yeah. and I'm thinking well you know how can this be that smart if the voice recognition doesn't really work um but apparently there's, they've like made an algorithm now that can, you know, like pick a voice out of a crowded room, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of crazy. But it also means like if you were super paranoid, like you could just set up like a perimeter of speakers around, invite all your friends over for a party and just like retire to the comms room and listen to what they're all saying about you. <laughs> That's that, not weird at all. No, it's not weird at all. Yeah. But, you know, it turns out what most of them are saying is, boy, he's got a lot of Alexa speakers, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> I That reminds me, I uh, spoke into my brother's Google Home thing the other day yeah. and uh, asked to play uh, Raining Men at 3 a.m. on Wednesday. So I'm going to ask him <laughs> if that actually uh, comes, comes through. <laughs> I, I'm still waiting for, I think Siri is one of those, um, like, I mean, everyone, everyone talks about how, you know, it's improving, but it's still got a way to go because I did ask it to play a History Eraser by Courtney Barnett recently and it came up with, I don't know a song, History Are Racist. And I was like, <laughs> well, yes, History is racist, but at the same time, that's not what I want to do. And uh, there's certainly no song about it. No. <laughs> so your show's coming up at the Comedy Festival. If people want to come and hear more about this and check it out, uh, where can they find out about this? Yeah, it's on the Comedy Festival website um, uh, and the show's called Teaching a Robot to Love. Uh, it's on at the Greek Centre every day of the festival except Monday at 7.30. No, 8.30, sorry, 7.30 on Sundays. Mm. Um, but yeah, or you can go, go to my website, which is whycomedian.com. That's like the letter Y, not like, why is this guy a comedian? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yanni, thanks for coming in. I hope you have a great festival. Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Dan's. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Bite Into It on 3RRR. The time is 7.37. And right now we're going to be speaking with Steve Haller from Surprise Attack Games, as well as many other extracurricular activities. Steve, uh, welcome to the show. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> no worries. Uh, just a little bit of a technical difficulty there. Um, so, Steve, uh, I guess we'll start with pr- maybe the most hardest question. Uh, what's your favourite game? Uh, that's that's actually easy. It is uh, Sam and Max Hit the Road. Oh, really? Old yeah. point-and-click adventure. What's your, what's, yep. what's, what do you like about that so much? Um, I don't know. I guess I just played it as a kid, and those characters are just so weird and wacky. And then I... Definitely got into the TV show when I was a bit older and then uh, tracked down all the comics and stuff. And, like, I still... I played it recently on a stream and it still just holds up so well, the humour and everything today, which is pretty hard for those sorts of games. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You had that locked and loaded. You've thought about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us about Surprise Attack and how that started? Yeah, sure. So Surprise Attack Games is was Australia's first publishing label. Uh, we actually started out as a PR firm for indie games, so we're working mostly on mobile stuff um, with the goal to slowly build up to be able to start publishing games on PC and consoles. Uh, so it'll be five years in July, actually, um, where we sort of uh, started publishing games and finding um, you know, local talent that needed some help um, with marketing and uh, production and all that sort of stuff, and now we work with our clients all around the world. Yeah, awesome. So you are a publisher... Um, but you do offer a range of um, different uh, services for developers. Can you just uh, go through a few, uh, few of those services? Yeah, sure. So we're a small team. We've only got four employees, actually, um, as a publishing label. And basically, each, uh, each employee has sort of a skill set that we offer developers. So we've got an in-house PR and marketing team that help you sort of define the, um, the messaging and also uh, how you want to present your game to everyone. Um, my role is a production coordinator. So a lot of small indie teams don't have uh, someone dedicated to project management. So I sort of jump in there and offer like, design advice and editing skills um, and just make sure that the project's running on time. So um, we have... Sorry. Yeah, sorry go on. So it's like a little bit more like a steady hand for people who are kind of new to the game as well. That- yeah, yeah, definitely. So we, we tend to work with um, smaller teams of uh, one to five people, um, which it's hard to justify having someone that's just a, uh, a, a team lead, essentially. Uh, so that's sort of where I step in. Um, we also help secure funding, um, both locally and internationally. Um, sometimes that's from uh, us, sometimes that's from government bodies and that sort of thing. Just whatever we can to get the project off the ground. So, just, yeah, a lot of all-around support for these kinds of games or these kinds of studios, yeah. sorry. Um, yeah, and sure. Can you tell us about some of the games that Surprise Attack supports? Uh, yeah, so um, oh, our most recent one uh, is Orwell Ignorance is Strength, which is a political thriller where you're basically going through Facebook profiles and stuff as a government agent to find out uh, who's been involved in um, terrorist attacks and fake news and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's actually the... We released that game episodically and the final episode is out tomorrow, actually, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that, um, that's an interesting uh, way to do it. The episode series kind of haven't really seen that since a few point-and-click adventures and, uh, well, Half-Life, three, uh, Half-Life episodes <laughs> and we know how that ended. Um, yeah, ours, ours is a little bit more stringent than that. We've released a new episode every fortnight. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've had a schedule and we've stuck to it. And it sort of helps to create sort of that TV show sort of uh, speculation threats, uh, you know, end on a cliffhanger, watch the forums explode as people are sharing theories. And there's multiple ways through each episode as well. So sometimes people are like, oh, my God, I found a way to get it uh, that this person didn't die. And everyone else is like, whoa, how the hell did that happen sort of thing. So that's pretty exciting. How, how do you simulate a, um, a kind of authentic sort of social media profile? Or I, I guess um, how do you make the gum chewing feel real in that scenario? Uh, 
Yeah, sure. It's um, it's a bit of suspension of disbelief um, needed from the player. But basically, like the game is, uh, the game is pitched that you are the character in the game. So you're playing mm-hmm. yourself, and um, you are basically looking at web pages. So it looks like a, a very fancy web browser where you're going. There's like a news site. There's a, a Facebook, Twitter mashup called um, Timelines, which has like profile pictures and we have like people's information and then sharing their intimate moments. And it sort of is meant to ask the question of how much information do we put on social media and how much can people deduce about us? But also, is that really who you are? Or are you putting your best foot forward, right? It reminds me um, of the um, the fake search engines and fake dating sites from TV shows. It'd be kind of fun yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of feels, of feels real, but it's not, you know. Yeah, one of my favourite parts of the game, actually, is the fake dating site we have called Singular. Uh, where I got to write a whole bunch of dating <laughs> profiles and that sort of thing. So, yeah. There needs to be a Forever Alone one. I think that would be great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, you're the Forever Alone guy. Yes, I am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like some uh, great writing involved in, in that. Um, and these games, like, they're, they're unique and have, a, like, a political or social message, like a few of your games. Is that something that, that you aim for when you're publishing or when you're looking for games to publish? That is definitely the line that we're heading down. Not necessarily political, but we're looking for games that have something to say or perhaps a unique way of looking at a social issue or just a really cool narrative. Um, in the past, we've done like a whole bunch of party games and all that sort of stuff, and that's, that's really fun, but everyone on the team is very into narrative stuff. So we're sort of trying to focus on that moving forward. But having said that, if a, if a really cool idea comes along that we, we're super on board, like there's no reason we wouldn't add that to the label, but we're definitely trying to add more of a serious tone to the games in our stable. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, and uh, just to change gears a little bit, can you tell us about your work with Indigenous Kids? Yeah, sure. So a couple of years ago, I um, did a talk at a careers expo out at Box Hill Institute of TAFE and um, met, met the coordinators out there of uh, HICSA, which is a, um Indigenous community centre out at Healesville, um, which is a pretty rural part of Melbourne's outskirts. And um, basically, uh, there's a whole bunch of kids there that uh, love video games but are kind of isolated and don't really have anyone to talk to about it. Um, so we, over the last two years, we've been like scrimping to get funding together and we basically host, it's essentially a book club where we choose a game over the, a term, a school term, and, um, we play it over the course of like four or five sessions and, uh, each session we sort of break down like gameplay design, narrative design, um, audio, everything that goes into games. And I try and sort of, um, give the students, uh, pathways that they could perhaps pursue if they wanted to get into game development. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very new thing. As I said, it's taken two years to get off the ground, and we're just in our first term right now. But um, it's pretty exciting and rewarding work. That's that's awesome. What's uh, what's the age range of these kids? Uh, so our youngest student, I believe, she is nine, and our oldest is twenty-two. So it's a very small class of uh, twelve kids. Um, but they're all uh, like. I mean, I have a nine-year-old who wants to talk about the Russian Revolution and how it ties into Bioshock. Like, I'm pretty, pretty taken aback by how into games that the, all these students are. And, um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting to hopefully uh, inspire them and um, give them sort of an avenue to hopefully explore for their future careers. What, what are some of the uh, types of roles that, that kids want to um, take on in games? What's, what's popular out there? Um, well, obviously, like anyone who has an artistic eye, like you can get into 3D modeling or 2D concept art or pixel art. Um, but like, I tend to also bring attention to roles that people don't think about, like games companies need lawyers and accountants, 
Uh, no, they don't really. No, just like get another dev. Come on. It's not all fun and games. <laughs> yeah, you didn't just it. say that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole bunch of um, people out there who think, oh, I couldn't be in games. And it's like, well, why not? Like a lot of roles could translate yeah. into games. Like maybe you could be a consultant and work across uh, multiple studios and that sort of thing. Especially when in a city like Melbourne where there are so many game development companies out there that um, could deal with contractors and stuff like that. There's a lot of avenues. Yeah. Yeah, you, need, you need things like recruiters and you need managers and there's, you know, pretty much a lot of the professional um, disciplines um, can be applied yeah, to a, a large game studio or a, or a publisher or distributor. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not even from a video game background. I started out in IT and then worked my way into journalism and now I'm a producer. So, uh, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of different avenues. Like, you don't have to go to university. You don't have to go study at AIE or something like that. Like, if you want want to go down a track um, and you're pretty good at what you do and you're passionate, then chances are you can you can find a job somewhere. Awesome. So this program's you said it's only new, but is there any way for people to get involved with something like that? Any way to help out? Um, basically, it's pretty informal in terms of, like, you could reach out to me on Twitter. Yeah. Um, we're trying to sort of get it um, sponsored by the government, and at that point it'll be more of a real thing. Um, but I've just teamed up with... Uh, the Hixer Community Centre out of Healdsville, which I'm pretty sure they have a website if uh, you do a Google search. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, one final thing, like, uh, you're, you're sick, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you've been running yourself ragged with, like, a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of uh, irons in the fire. But um, yeah. you, you've got a streaming uh, on Twitch streaming page as well called Pixels for Breakfast. Um, how would you get started with that? Uh, so, yeah, I was a journalist um, for a company called MMGN that uh, ended up going bust. Um, so I started working at Surprise Attack, but my passion has always been writing about video games. So I started a website called Pixels for Breakfast. And then I quickly learned that streaming was kind of where I wanted to go with that. Uh, so I was actually streaming on a Mixer, which is Microsoft's streaming platform, uh, for, for a year and was Australia's first official partner, which was pretty exciting. Um, and then struck up a deal with Twitch to do some more long-form, in-depth, developer-focused um, series where I basically, uh, instead of streaming every single night like a lot of people do, I basically have seasons of content um, in which I'll be like five or six episodes that each go for two hours long, um, usually with a developer interview at the start that's pre-canned and then I'll uh, jump into the game. Yeah, that's a pretty good format actually. Like a, That's fairly unique among um, yeah, streamers. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to give up the streaming, but work hours are absolutely insane. So it's like trying to keep my hobby alive, even though I have no time. So this allows me to pre-record some stuff, get it all in the bag, and then I can just set up, okay, for the next six weeks, I'm streaming once a week and dropping these episodes. So it's kind of more of a solution to my lifestyle, but um, people have been really getting behind it and it's been getting a lot of support on Twitch, which is really exciting, so... Oh, awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show and explaining some of what you do to us. Do No worries. Thanks so much for yeah. having me. No, sounded wrong. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so um, get well soon and thanks. No worries. Thank you. Uh, we've got a few things to talk about um, in these next few minutes. Um, JS Conference is on. I know this because I can't get a developer on Slack at the moment. Um, they are at JS Conference, which is probably better use of their time than responding to my ticket requests. Um, <laughs> JS Conf is a curated family of events um, uh, aiming to upheld the highest ends in the industry. Um, it's a well-established and, I guess, recognised worldwide um, a series of events. 
Um, so for the fourth time, um, it's taking place in Melbourne, uh, which is great. They talk about front-end dev, um, design, JavaScript, of course, um, industry culture, ethics, a lot of the stuff that we talk about. Um, I think there has been some stuff going on. Um, people were up at Hillsville um, recently, but I don't think the event um, is actually there. It's in um, it's in North Melbourne at the Meat Market this year. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I guess what we'll do is we'll get Laura to um, have a bit of a chat about this in coming weeks. I know she's been down there um, covering the event. Um, I think you can still get some tickets um, available. Um, it is a little bit exy, um, but I don't know if you're really desperate to get along there. Um, there are still a few talks mm. going on. Um, yeah, good swag, um, good meals, um, good everything going on. Well worth it. Well worth it. Mm. Um, Something else that is uh, well worth it. Um, well, maybe not even. Uh, mm. Amazon shares. Uh, it, it, it has become, um, in, in recent days, Amazon has overtaken Alphabet, which for those of you playing at home don't know, Alphabet is the parent company of Google. Um, so as the second largest company in the world when it comes to market capitalization and from a quick uh, Alphabet Google search that I just did, market capitalization is basically the value of a share multiplied by the number of shares that there are. Mm. So it's really, it's about the gross value of a company. Um, Amazon has overtaken uh, Alphabet uh, by about $1 billion or so $1 billion US. So mm. uh, Amazon is currently uh, worth $763 billion US well Alphabet is only worth 762 and they must feel really really bad about that Small. no prizes for guessing what the number one valued company no. in the world is there is a great picture of Jeff here on the thing with his hands kind of like out in front of him like he's catching a couple of basketballs and mm. it looks like he's thinking this is how I'm going to break Tim Cook yeah. I'm going to break him <laughs> like this I'm going to reel him in with my number two lure and then I'm going to break him yeah see I, I, what, I, what I like is the fact that um, I'm pretty sure that Alf, uh, Google decided to create Alphabet as a parent company is purely so that the name would start with A and mm. now it's a really kind of it's good shot in the, in the foot. It's in, in the yellow pages, <laughs> yeah. like A-A-A-A-A-Alphabet. Yeah. So if you, if you want to get big in tech, your company needs to, name needs to start with an A, clearly. Um, yeah, Apple obviously is the photo- answer to that question that we asked before in case you didn't work that out. I reckon this photo makes him look like uh, the brain from Pinky and the Brain. He's like talking about how to take over the world. No, see, and I mean, I know we shouldn't be talking about the, what a photo looks like on air, but essentially he's standing there with his hands in the bottom right-hand corner. I like to think that there's a theremin just out of shot and he's actually playing the theremin <laughs> on stage because God knows we don't actually want to hear him talk. We want him to do something interesting. Yeah. yeah. Guys, I'm going to break your hearts a little bit here and we might have to come back to that topic that we were really keen to talk on because I don't think we can do it justice in, in one minute. No. But um, one of the things that has excited me today on a day of kind of lots of news on, on technology going um, haywire is... Uh, a UK startup has um, come up with a novel way to approach um, urban pollution. Um, a, a lot of people in the UK die each year um, uh, due to pollution-related um, complications uh, in their health. Um, and a mossy living wall uh, with the pollution-absorbing power equivalent to hundreds of trees uh, has been recently installed in Piccadilly Circus. This really beautiful piece of design. I'm, I'm looking at the photos of this thing and it's just kind of like this kind of organic-looking, smooth, white bench with a whole... With a wall of moss above it and 
Moss is known as being particularly good in terms of uh, air replenishment compared to a lot of other plants. Mm. And so it's great, it's great to see that someone's come up with this idea of, you know, taking the green wall and just putting it in the middle of the street. It, oh, I just love the look of this thing and I want one in my house. It is amazing. Um, it's actually, yeah, um, each bench is filled with a, a variety of the mosses. Um, they can do up to 275 trees worth of gunk, uh, which is great. Um, City tree um, is the name of the, uh, the idea, which is great. Um, it's using the Internet of Things to... Um, measure and maintain its own performance and um, the plant's requirements. So that's good. They don't have to sort of water it and look after it. It's all kind Mm. of um, self-contained. I reckon it's not that long before we start seeing these around Melbourne and bring them on, I say, bring them on. You could plaster a whole building with one of these things, moss it up. Absolutely. I mean, I was discussing today with a colleague about that, I don't know what the skyscraper is called, but there's a building in Sydney that had like this amazing green wall. It's the entire side of the building and it's just, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Thank you, our guest tonight. Thank you to Yanni and thank you to Steve. Um, thank you to you uh, for listening tonight. I hope you're having a, a good night wherever you are. Uh, we've been bought into it tonight. Um, a different bunch of humans will be back next week to take you through the show. Up next is Anthony Carew with the International Pop Underground, which is lots of fun. Make sure you stick around. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.